Amen. What is a Christian? You know, you could ask that question. It seems quite basic. Different ways you could answer it that would still be true answers getting at how to explain and clarify that very important question. You could simply say a Christian is a disciple of Christ. Even the word Christ is contained in the word Christian, right? So Christian is built on the kingliness of Jesus. The fact that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. A Christian is a disciple of Christ, and a disciple means a learner. One of the ways we try to speak about being a Christian is, I'm someone who's learning Christ. Looking to Him, learning Him, trusting, submitting to His Word. We are students of Christ. That's one of the things we want to truly say when we explain what it means to be a Christian. We are students of Christ, learning His wisdom and His ways. And we're shaped by His Word given by the power of the Holy Spirit. A Christian is one who trusts in Christ and is taught by Christ. Trusting in Christ, taught by Christ through the Word, that is what a believer, a disciple of the Lord Jesus is. And when you read Psalm 25, I think the lyrics of David convey that's how he understands what's true of himself. He says... To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. That's verse 1, which is a statement of trust. David is a disciple, a learner, however, with language like verse 4. Make me to know your ways. Verse 5, lead me in your truth and teach me. Because that's what a Christian wants. A Christian prays that because they understand that in trusting Christ, I want to follow Christ as a learner and a student Of the Lord's ways and wisdom. So we pray for God to deliver us from our sins. That we might then be led. Guided by him. Directed in his word. On a path of life and discipleship. And this psalm. 22 verses. Is David's reflection on what it means to trust the Lord. And ask God to instruct his soul. When we look at this prayer. We see that these 22 verses. Can interestingly match. In the original language, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, this psalm itself is an acrostic. An acrostic moves successively one letter after another. And at the beginning of each of these verses, the verse begins with the very next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a very artfully produced psalm. It's beautifully produced and carefully designed so that in the beauty and literary genius of the psalm, our trust in God and our need to be taught by God would be clarified in these 22 verses. I want you to notice something that's going to alternate through the psalm, and it's going to serve as our, our, the way we outline it. There is a, a section opening where he's speaking to God, to the Lord. Verses 1 to 7, words to the Lord, but then in verses 8 through 10, words about the Lord. And then what we're going to see is that alternating sequence. Words to the Lord, then words about the Lord. Words to the Lord, and then words about the Lord. Because David, like in the other Psalms, expects his psalm to be used, enjoyed, and affirmed corporately. And not just in like David's private diary of his psalms that somebody you know, found under a bed. This instead is David saying, here are the truths to speak to God, and also what to know about God. That we confess. In Psalm 25, we begin with the words to the Lord in verses 1 to 7, the Psalm of David. 
To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And one commentator says the rest of the psalm is just commenting on what that means. That's a beautiful statement in verse 1, isn't it? To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. It's to lift up to entrust. It's like someone was carrying something that needed safekeeping and and you reached down to receive what they were lifting up from you because you could take care of it. You had the strength and you had the preserving power that if they would just entrust to you what they could not just handle themselves, it would be secure. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And this really matters because last week we saw in Psalm 24, verse 3, who is it that can ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, the answer in verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false. So if the one who ascends the hill of the Lord doesn't lift up his soul to what is, what is false, to whom does he lift up his soul? To Yahweh, to the Lord. He doesn't lift up his soul to what is false. He lifts up his soul to the Lord. And David says, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm about. I am entrusting my life. That's what the soul represents here. It represents one's life. So we ascend the hill of the Lord by not entrusting our souls to what is false, but instead lifting our souls to the Lord in verse 1. And we saw at the end of chapter 24 that the gates are to be lifted up and that the ancient doors are to be lifted up. That's how Psalm 24 ends. Psalm 25 begins saying, my soul is lifted up like those gates and those ancient doors. My soul is lifted to you, O Lord. It's a statement of trust. We don't have to just imply that. Verse 2 confirms it. Oh my God, in you I trust. It is a lifting up of trust in God. Let me not be put to shame. Which means that it will not be in vain if you were to trust the Lord. It would not be in vain. You would not be, in the end, exposed to open embarrassment or shame for your trust in God. In you I trust, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. It will not be the psalmist who will face future shame. It will be the enemies of God. Shame is not the future for the people of God. Rather, vindication and resurrection and glory and life with God. So he says in verse 3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. I love this because David is talking about himself, but he's talking about himself so that you could believe it too. So he says, verse 2, that you could then join with rejoicing in verse 3, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Well, that's us. As we wait for the Lord, which means we hope in Him, we're focused upon Him, we're seeking what would be glorifying to Him, we want to fear God with a reverence and honor of life, we wait for the Lord with this active posture of soul and trusting our life to God, that will not be in vain. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous, in verse 3. So the shame will not be for the righteous, but for the wicked. Wantonly treacherous is quite a phrase, isn't it? Wantonly means to do something without restraint. To do it wantonly means to do it shamelessly. Treachery has the idea of deceit and betrayal. This means those who will be ashamed are those who are characterized in their wickedness by such rebellion that will meet public condemnation by God on the day of judgment. That will not be true for God's people. For we have lifted to him our souls. We shall not be condemned. God will not be our judge because he has become our refuge. And those for whom God is their refuge shall never know God as their judge, only as their redeemer. 
So he says in verse 2, let not my enemies exult over me. Bringing up enemies here is not going to be the only place in the psalm we realize the psalmist is not just facing some inner turmoil. There are some conditions, some circumstances that are frustrating. Enemies who are allied against him. Those who are exulting over him. And he says, Lord, let that not stay that way. Because the enemy should fear God. They should tremble in their wickedness for the judgment coming to them. So he says in verse 3, they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Believers, though, are those who wait for the Lord. I think that means no matter our circumstances, we're wanting to hope in God. And no matter what the conditions of life around us, we're wanting to seek what is glorifying to God. Because we believe that the promises of God are not only true, He will keep them all at His perfect timing and wisdom. We can really wait for the Lord can wait for the Lord. So David, David says, okay, I'm waiting for you. What am I doing in the meantime? Well, as I wait for the Lord, my hope is shaped by and my heart instructed by your word. So he says in verses 4 and 5, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. This is what a Christian wants. So if you say to yourself, I don't really want that. You should consider, my brother, you may not know God. Because a Christian wants what verses 4 and 5 are saying. They want to know God. They want to know His ways. They want to understand His word. They want to be led by His righteous hand. They know this and want this. Because at the end of verse, in the the first line of verse 5, God is the God of my salvation, David says. It's not that he's trying to learn the ways of the Lord so that he might get saved. God is the God of his salvation. And that means David is now in a relationship with God, a covenant communion with God. And that means David says, I want to know this God who has saved me by his grace. The ways of God, the paths of God are ones that are righteous. Led in truth and taught in verse 5 reminds us of the shepherd psalm. Psalm 23 talks about God as our shepherd. And he leads his people. Makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters, restores my soul, leads me in paths of righteousness. It's those same paths in view. The paths of what reflects the character and words of God. How else are God's ways and paths known but through His Word? In other words, this is the same kind of heart that we see in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't listen to the counsel of the wicked. Or stand in the way of sinners. Or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So he can pray, make me know your ways. Help me learn your paths. Lead me in your truth. Because his heart is delighting in the word of God. We read Psalm 25's prayer in light of the devotion of the psalmist in Psalm 1. He meditates and delights in the words of God. For you I wait all the day Long. One commentator says that verse 5, lead me in your truth and teach me. That's a good prayer for us every time we sit and open up our Bible. To pray something so concise but clear as to open the Word of God and pray, lead me in your truth and teach me. That you, O God, by your Holy Spirit would do this for you are the God of my salvation. So the prayer to learn of God is grounded in what God has been to the psalmist, a Savior. He's the God of my salvation, David says. 
Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Which means, long before I came around, what was true of you, God? Full of mercy. Full of steadfast love. David also knows, though, in verse 7, he has sinned. David has sinned. And in his youth, with transgressions. And so in verses 6 and 7, he wants the Lord to remember one thing and not to remember something else. So the language of remembrance is being invoked in two different ways. He says in verse 6, here's what I want you to bring to mind, God. Don't bring this to mind. So bring to mind in verse 6 your great mercy, your steadfast love. All of that's wonderful covenant language. For they, your steadfast love and mercy, have been from of old. What's also true, though, is not just of the character of God, but the sinfulness of David. And David knows that his only hope is that God would not count his sins against him. That David would look to God as his refuge and that God would not count the sins of his youth against him. So the sins of my youth are my transgressions. This is a way of David looking in hindsight. So he's looking backward and he's recognizing, yeah, my path is complicated. I'm a fractured, broken person, you know, sinned and transgressions, thought, deed, word. I am guilty. So remember not the transgressions of my youth. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. He is pleading that God's goodness, steadfast love, and mercy. That's a cluster of words, isn't it? Just mashing all those together in verse 7. He's praying that all of that would be upon David in such a way that David would be delivered from his sins. Okay, so yes, David has enemies. They are exulting over him in verse 3. They are wantonly treacherous. But even if David didn't have enemies, David still has sins. So this means David's deliverance can't just be things outside of him getting worked out the way it would be best for him socially and politically as the king. He needs forgiveness and pardon of sin from God alone. So he's praying that God would remember mercy. One writer says that verses 6 and 7... Isn't this the whole message of the Bible? That God, the God of the Old and New Testament, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who has given us His Son to die upon the cross for our sins and been raised from the dead on the third day, that this God would act upon sinners with mercy, steadfast love, and goodness, that we realize He is our only hope. We have no hope apart from Him. And that this is what the whole Bible is driving at. Not that you would just know it historically, And literarily, and say, oh, you know, Psalm 25, it's an acrostic. Isn't that interesting? Well, if you die in your sins, what does that matter? What David is trying to say, as artfully designed as the psalm is, is, hey, entrust your soul to God. Hope in Him. Wait for the Lord. Call out to God for mercy. Because God is full of steadfast love. And He has been this way long before we came along. He's been this way from of old. Oh, this is an ancient hope. What good news this is. And in verses 8 to 10, he moves from words to the Lord to now words about the Lord. What is it about the character of God that David reminds himself but also declares for his readers and they confess corporately? In verses 8 to 10, words about the Lord, good and upright is the Lord. You can say all sorts of true things about God. Here are two things. God is good and God is upright, which means His ways are righteous. 
The standard of his perfect character is the measurement of all of his words and ways which are always upright. He is good and upright. And David says, because that's true of God, he instructs us. Verse 8 tells us this is what he's like. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. The word way is about a path, the path of righteousness. It reminds us of Proverbs, path of folly, path of wisdom, path of wickedness, path of righteousness. Well, there is this way then, the way of following the Lord. And because God is good and upright, he doesn't abandon his people. He keeps covenant love and steadfast mercy and faithfulness. And therefore, when his people come to him and they say, teach me, O God, I want to know you, O God, make me and lead me, O God. He doesn't because he's faithful. And he loves his people. In fact, in verse 9, those who come to him, they're humbling themselves, aren't they? They don't believe they've got it all figured out. They don't believe they can save themselves. They recognize their great need. So they come to God as those who are humble. And he leads the humble in what is right. Because he is good. And as we come to God, he instructs sinners. The sinners who come to him, humbling themselves before the Lord. He teaches the humble his way. This means that the word of God for the people of God has a work by the Holy Spirit in us that produces change and sanctifying fruit, confirming genuine faith. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches them. Now, his way is unpacked a little bit more in verse 10 with the word paths. Same idea, though, the way, the paths. It's what a life that reflects a knowledge of God. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Which means as he directs us out of his own character and what he leads us in is that we might know him as his image bearers in becoming like the Lord's character. Good and faithful. Loving and merciful. Those marked by this work of God. Those for those who keep his covenant and testimonies. The end of verse 10 is emphasizing keeping covenant and testimonies. And that's another way of saying the words of God as he's made them known in scripture. They delight in the law of God like the Psalm 1 person. Which means for the believer, the Lord's word isn't, you know, extraneous and uninteresting to us. The believer in God, the worshiper of Yahweh wants to know his word. Because in his word, God's made himself known. So if I'm going to know God and his ways, I want to know what he's testified of himself. So his testimonies, what he's made known and borne witness to of his character and wisdom, we want to keep that. Which means to study it and to apply oneself to it. It means to seek to obey the Lord and to follow him in submission. That's what it means, isn't it, to confess Jesus as Lord anyway. We're not just acknowledging historically something happened on the cross in an empty tomb. We're saying with our confession, Jesus is Lord. It's a confession of his sovereignty. It's a confession of his authority. Jesus is Lord and I am not. Jesus is Lord. The words about the Lord in verses 8 to 10 are followed by that alternating sequence now. Words to the Lord in only one verse here. It's the central section of the whole psalm. Verse 11. And when you read the content of verse 11, if something's going to be centralized, this is a beautiful thing to put in the middle. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. I love how David there in verse 11, in these words to the Lord, is not trying to minimize his sin. He's not trying to say, well, you know, Lord, if you really look at it, and if you measure my life up against others, listen, I'm really doing all right. I'm not that bad, you know, I'm really trying, I do my best. 
David is saying, let's just be honest, my guilt is humongous. It's great. My guilt is great. And I'm praying that you will pardon it. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. For the namesake means in light of God's character, which is full of steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness and goodness. He says, oh God, for the sake of that being on display, pardon my guilt, for it is great. We don't come to God then humbly, in some way denying or being, trying to minimize the nature of our sinfulness. Instead, we come to the Lord, needing to be ever aware that we are far more sinful than we realize. And that we're not trying to talk about the smallness of our sins, but to recognize the greatness of our guilt. And our only hope is that mercy is greater than our great guilt. Spurgeon says, I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. I love those two lines from him. It's one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes of all time. I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. The psalmist has great iniquity, but God has great love and mercy. So that's what we need. That If our guilt is great, we don't need some (laughs) inferior display of steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. We need power, power, wonder-working power. That's what's needed, isn't it? So when when we think about what God has done and how we sing the mercy and saving, cleansing work of God, we realize we're saying my guilt is great and his mercy is greater. I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. These words to the Lord are followed by words about the Lord, right? We're seeing the rhythm, the sequence here in verses 12 to 15. Words about the Lord. A question. Who is the man who fears the Lord? That's a key concern for the whole book of Proverbs. And occasionally that idea appears in the Psalms. It appears here, doesn't it? Who is the man who fears the Lord? The one that's reverencing and honoring God. Who's living for the glory of God. Who wants to learn the ways and wisdom of God. The man who fears God. Him, that person, will God instruct. In the way that he, God, will choose. Meaning that he leads him on the path of righteousness. He guides him faithfully to teach him the ways of God. That by the Holy Spirit, through his word and with the people of God together, we could grow in our fear and knowledge of God. Instructed by the Holy Spirit who is greater than any human teacher. Who's the man who fears the Lord? Well, when that person can be identified as the one having a heart that loves God and whose refuge is God. Well, good news for this person. God knows him. Leads and guides and instructs the heart of that person. God teaches us by his word. In fact, the word of God seems to be in the concern of verse 13 because of the promise of abiding and well-being and inheriting the land. And the reason that promise would be a really good, good news is if someone knew earlier Old Testament promises, right? His soul shall abide in well-being in verse 13. His offspring shall inherit the land. That's talking about inner and outward flourishing. His soul shall abide in well-being. Well, that sounds wonderful. A life in communion with God that our soul would prosper. Doesn't that make you think again of Psalm 1? He is like a tree planted by streams of water. And everything he does prospers and his leaf does not wither. When you read these later promises of Psalm 25, they're built on everything that we've read before. This person who's abiding in well-being, whose soul is flourishing in a knowledge of God. David says, 
his offspring shall inherit the land. And that reminds us of the promise of Abraham and the covenant with Abraham. God said to Abraham that you're going to have offspring and I'm going to give them a land and I'm going to guide them into that land. It will be their inheritance. It's imagery of conquest because inheriting the land reminds us of Joshua. The book of Joshua where he led them in victory into the land of promise. So here you have language about covenantal flourishing in the knowledge of God. He says in verse 12 then, God's going to instruct this person in the way, the one who fears the Lord. And their life will flourish in their knowledge of God. In verse 14, what God has for them is something the ESV uses with the word friendship. This is not in any way to diminish the sovereignty and majesty of God. But it is to say that we can say we in covenant with God have become friends of God as opposed to his enemies. The wicked are the enemies of God. Which would mean by the grace of the Lord and his beloved son Jesus Christ. In Christ and in Christ through faith in Christ. We are friends of God. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Jesus even says to his disciples in John 15. I call you my friends. This language matters because it's an image of intimate fellowship and delight. A communion together at a table. And even earlier in chapter 23, God was preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Anointing my head with oil. My cup was overflowing. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Is anyone going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever as his enemy? No, that's why this word friendship is so important. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear the Lord. He makes known to them his covenant. Again, I think highlighting the importance of his word. So for someone who knows God and covenant with God, who's a friend of God, where are their eyes? Verse 15 tells us the direction of one's eyes. I think the eyes here represent one's life. To say in verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. It's like we wait for the Lord by where we look. I mean, imagine if you were really looking forward to someone dropping off a package at your, you know, the Amazon Prime truck was coming. You ordered on Prime Day, you took advantage of those 48 hours, and, and you were waiting on those Prime trucks to come. And if, if you're looking, you're watching, and your eyes are toward the direction, especially if you get an alert, your package is eight stops away. Oh, so you realize, you know, this is closer now than when you first began. And here you have here this promise of eyes toward the Lord in this anticipatory, this waiting posture for he will pluck my feet out of the net. God is the refuge and, and object of sight and focus because he is the deliverer of the psalmist. In other words, why in verse 15 are his eyes toward the Lord? Well, it's because the Lord is the one who delivers. He will pluck my feet out of the net. That's a description of a deliverance. Because if you get your feet tangled up in a net, somebody had set a trap. And, you know, you thought it might, you might have been fine one foot in front of the other, and then all of a sudden you're not. And then your feet are caught up in this net, and you can't free yourself. So to pluck feet out of the net is to be set free from some kind of entanglement or bondage. Why are the psalmist's eyes toward the Lord? Because for the psalmist, God is the deliverer. Why would we seek after and lift our souls to something that cannot save? So here's what the psalmist is committed to doing. My eyes are ever, which means always. My eyes are ever or always toward the Lord. Because what is always true of God is that he is a deliverer and steadfast covenant keeper of his people. So therefore, it makes sense 
that our eyes would be toward the Lord. He will pluck my feet out of the net. Verses 16 to 22 end our passage today. The alternating sequence continues. We move from words about the Lord, words to the Lord. He says in verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. This is a good uh, plea after what we read of his eyes in verse 15. My eyes are toward the Lord, turn to me. It's as if there's an interlocking of eyes, my eyes toward the Lord, his face toward me, a face marked by mercy and covenant love. How do we know that's the look the psalmist is hoping for? Look at the prayer. Turn to me and be gracious to me. There it is. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Which means inwardly and outwardly, there is deep struggle here. There is deep struggle here within this psalmist and outside of this psalmist. And he says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. Turn to me, O God, and be gracious. It's a langu- it's language of showing grace and favor. He needs this from the Lord. He's pleading for this from the Lord. And he says in verse 17, my heart's troubles are so big. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. That's a way of speaking here, not just about the greatness of his guilt, which earlier he had already acknowledged. My guilt is great. He's also saying his troubles, which would include not just his own sins, but other things that are hardships and difficulties in life. He says those are huge too. They are enlarged within me. They are great. Bring me out of my distresses. So in verse 15, when he says he will pluck my feet out of the net, in verse 17 he says bring me out of my distresses. In other words, God, I know the kind of God you're like. I know what your character is, so now I'm praying. That you will bring me out of the distresses because you pluck my feet from the net. I am lonely. I am afflicted. We appreciate the sheer honesty of the psalmist. Can believers have hearts of enlarged troubles? Feeling lonely and afflicted? Surrounded by hardship and difficulty? Well, the answer must be yes. It must be, yes, that that is something that can be true for the life of the Christian because we have the scriptures where David, who knows God, is experiencing that. And what is David helping us to do? To turn our eyes where they should go. The God who is the God of our salvation and who plucks our feet from the net, who brings us out of distresses, he says in verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Over and over again, he's mentioned his sins. In verse 7, he says, remember not the sins of my youth. Verse 11, pardon my guilt for it is great. And now in verse 18, forgive all my sins. So three times so far in this psalm, he has been aware that the troubles that he faces are not just something outside himself. He must die to his sin, repent of sin. He must be pardoned of sin. And he doesn't want... Just a little bit of relief. He says, forgive all my sins. Forgive all my sins. We do not need God to meet us halfway in this. Listen to me. We need need Him to forgive all our sins. We need total pardon. This psalmist doesn't just want the burden of his sin lightened. He needs it rolled away. 
He needs the burden lifted and removed. He needs something done for him that he cannot do. He needs all of his sins forgiven. And that's what he prays for. He says in verse 19, Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, it must be so distressing then. See, he's using language of trouble and enemies and affliction. Yeah, when he talks about here in verse 19, people hating him with a violent hatred, that sounds really grim and really awful. So we want to grant that. That in verse 19, he has foes and they are not neutral toward him. He has people seeking his undoing. That's what it means that they act with violent hatred. Oh, they want him destroyed. And certainly a king of Israel could make his share of enemies. So when David is praying this as one who knows God, he recognizes that in following God and in being in covenant with God, he is not inoculated from hardship. That is not the way that is. Instead, in verse 19, he longs for the delivering hand of God where the enemies would be defeated and the people of God vindicated. So he says in verse 20, oh, guard my soul. That's a prayer for every day, isn't it? Oh God, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. It's interesting that near the end of this psalm, the language of shame resumes. Because at the beginning of the psalm, that was a concern that those wantonly treacherous wicked would be put to shame. But he says, let that, let that not happen to me. In other words, let me be found, Lord, on that day, not as your enemy, but as your friend. Because friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And into you, Lord, I trust my soul. I lift my soul to you, O God. Language of David's profession of faith that God is his refuge and hope and help. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. That's his profession. I wonder if that's yours. I wonder in reading this whether David's prayers resonate here and his plea would resonate with you and his concern for his sins and outward enemy would resonate with you and that his desire for God to be refuge and strength and pardoner of sin would be something you want. David is seeking to walk on this path of righteousness and as God instructs him and guides him, one of the things that's produced that I think verse 21 demonstrates is fruit in the life of those who fear the Lord. And he says in verse 21, May my integrity and uprightness preserve me. May integrity and uprightness, this is David's, may it preserve me for I wait for you. Meaning that what's marking this path of life and righteousness is David's fear of God and submission to the words of God so that he continues down this path not of folly and not of entrusting himself to what's false. He's waiting for God. May this preserve me, for I wait for you. What's interesting about uprightness in David's life, not because David is sinless, he needs pardoned sin. David is not sinless, he has guilt that is great. How can he talk about uprightness and integrity if his guilt is great and he needs forgiveness of sin? Because when God is our refuge, the righteousness we have is one that is counted to us, not what comes from within us. Not something we morally stir up on our own where we think, oh, this great integrity and uprightness, which I have produced by my great power and striving. Instead, it's always the cross and the power of the blood of Christ and the blessed Holy Spirit. Waiting for God and refuge in God means we are now living for God and that that has a preserving effect. David, however, again, isn't just thinking about himself. 
he's also thinking about those around him who would be confessing this psalm. Who would be reading his words and praying his prayers. And so he says, in the last of the words to God in verse 22. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This means David is praying not just for deliverance out of his own distresses. He recognizes that spiritual and physical travails are around him in lives of others as well. What do they need? Well, they need redemption. I mean, they don't, it's not a matter of our deserving or meriting. That's not in the equation here. It's the mercy of God. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. David's ending here of his psalm broadens then to the widest of the audience. That those around him would look to God and know God as their Redeemer. One of the ways we can see God answering this prayer is after the Old Testament. Because to pray for redemption and to pray for pardon from sin and to pray that our great guilt would be removed, we turn to the New Testament work of a new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ formed by His body and blood on the cross. When David prays, redeem, O God, out of troubles, the Lord in the New Testament gives us the message of the Son of God who is our Redeemer. In other words, the incarnation is the answer to this kind of prayer. Redemption has come to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the good news of the cross, and in the victory of his resurrection is for the nations. That they would make disciples of the nations and baptize them and proclaim the Redeemer who delivers us from the troubles. Who can produce in us a life that brings glory to God in the fear of the Lord. Where God turns to us with his graciousness and his merciful heart and pardons our guilt, our great guilt, and forgives not just some, but all our sins. We need this. And that's why the gospel is such good news. I have a need for Christ. And I have a great Christ for my need. When we sense our dilemma, when we have a, a, an inward reflection on the steep problem we have in our guilt and shame, the gospel is this blazing banner of light and life-giving power for us because we realize that our sins are many, but His mercy is more than our sins. And in one of uh, Richard Sibbs's works, The Bruised Reed, he gives this memorable quote. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And that's, that's the hope of the worshiper of Yahweh. That we come to the one full of steadfast love and mercy. With all of our many sins and our great guilt. And we come to him knowing his strength is greater. His steadfast love and mercy exceeds the greatness of our guilt. It is true, isn't it? There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Let's stand as we pray.